Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Amen. Welcome. Good morning. If you're on the live stream, welcome. If you're here in the room, welcome. Um, you reminded me, Chloe, of what I, uh, interaction I had with my daughter this week. I was at my son's basketball practice, and I turned to my five-year-old daughter, and I said, Maya, do you want to go with me to the daddy-daughter dance? And she looked at me like this, she's like, we'll see. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm hoping I can woo my five-year-old to join me. So dads, come on down. It'll be fun. We'll have a good time. It won't be a long, long night. It'll be a, a little power hour of hanging out. And I don't know what dances we're going to do with five-year-olds in whatever age. Some of you have a multiple daughters, so you'll have to the work cut out for you, but we'll figure it out. Welcome. Thank you for coming. I'm also reminded of, uh, I was thinking of this message this morning, this passage, and I was thinking, it reminded me of uh, a conference I went to. When I, when I first became a pastor, I got invited to multiple little conferences, big conferences, small conferences. I was the new shiny object in our old network of churches, and I've since then retired thinking I'm not that big of a deal, and I enjoy spending my time with you and Lincoln and this church. But there's just one conference I got invited to where it was like 3,000 people at the conference, and then they had these breakout sessions where they had uh, junior speakers speaking at the breakout sessions, and I was one of those newer preacher speakers at those sessions. And you got a little blurb, you got a little bio, um, and then you would be fishing for those 3,000 people had to go somewhere, and they would go to your session, maybe, if your wife helped you write a creative enough blurb and bio. And so I, I, I feel like this is one of those things where if you had a choice, you would not pick this session if you had a choice, unless I was slated up against how to suffer well, how to share your faith, how to give money, how to, how to endure under persecution. If those were my competition, I would, I would get some of you, but but this is not a topic we enjoy speaking on. Just to be honest, every time I speak on this subject, and I think it's probably my dozen or more, probably two dozen sermons I've given on this subject my entire life, I feel like a, a cold, wet, legalistic blanket we slip on as a congregation. And that's not my desire. I understand this is not a strength of ours. Some of you are flipping ahead trying to find where. This is not a strength of ours as a church, as Christians, as people. But regardless of gifting or current strengths, this is a reality of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus has for us as people, and we need to grow, and it's okay to grow. And so we, in light of that tough, bleak mountain we're going to climb today as we work through this topic, will you uh, bow your heads with me and let's, let's pray. God, I thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for there's passages that we give out of our strength, and there's passages we look at out of our weaknesses as Christians. And this might be a passage that is a strength of brothers and sisters in this room. This might be a passage that is a weakness of brothers and sisters in this room. Ultimately, we all don't measure up and we all fail. We all need you, Jesus. We need your gospel. We need your help to accomplish anything that is in the Bible. I pray that we as a individuals would do business with you and we as a, as a congregation, as a church, would do business with you. Business with you as we look to these passages, Lord. We love you. We need you. Uh, make your name great in our hearts. Make your name great in our city. Uh, just use us, Lord, at whatever capacity you see fit as a congregation, as a group of people. We commit this prayer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. This has been called the Lord's Prayer for 2,000 some years. This is probably one of those passages in the Bible that you will be familiar with, 
from Sunday school or some other context in your life, you've heard these words before. And so we're going to work through it. It should more accurately be called the disciples' prayer. It's how Jesus tells his disciples to pray, but we're not going to fight 2,000 years of church history. This is the Lord's Prayer. We're looking at Luke 11, 1 through 13 today. And so as you look at something you're very familiar with, you tend to take it for granted. You tend to speed read it, move on, think you already know it, and move on to the next thing. But I do propose to you that it's not what you know, it's what you do. And I think what you know impacts what you do. And I'm excited to look at this passage with you today, but I think Jesus has some very heavy words on prayer. And so it's hard to work through heavy-hitting passages and make it all light and fluffy, and that's not my desire, nor is that your preference. We want the real whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God. All right, so Luke 11, verse 1. Bow, look, look at your phones, your Bibles in front of you. We're going to jump in in verse 11. Verse 1, verse 1, chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as Jesus taught his, as John taught his disciples. This is the only time in the Gospel kind of Luke where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them anything. Have you ever thought to yourself, I need to learn something? I need to learn a new skill. I do a bunch of marriage counseling as a pastor. As pastors do a bunch of marriage counseling. There's new skills we're teaching young guys and young girls about being married. You have a baby. People have had babies the last couple months here in this church. There's a new skill you need to learn as a parent. As life goes and as you grow, you need to learn new skills. Have you ever thought to yourself, a new skill I need to learn is how to pray? Have you ever thought to yourself, I know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to a spiritual leader (laughs) to learn how to pray. Hopefully you'd think, I need to pray. I'm going to ask my community group leader. I'm going to ask one of the pastors. I think they pray. This godly man or this godly woman in the church, I think they pray. I'm going to go ask them how to pray. Hopefully you have that same heart as the disciples. I know we could all feel inadequate in our Christian walk. We could all experience seasons of dryness in our prayer life. But we all need to learn how to pray. We all need to be taught today from the Word of God with the Holy Spirit's conviction what the Bible says here in Luke 11. This is a healthy thing for you to wrestle with. This is a healthy thing that the disciples wrestled with, how to pray. And you heard, you know, at the end of the day, more is said than is done. And at the end, things are both caught and taught. Jesus was teaching with his lifestyle, and he was teaching with his mouth on the subject of prayer. It is amazing that the disciples just, they got it. I mean, you'll, I'll show you in a second the highlight fly over the prayer when Jesus is praying in the gospel accounts. But the disciples aren't that thick. They realized that there was true power that occurred when Jesus was praying. True ministry power, true personal power. It seemed like there's conviction. There was, there was emotional release. There was, there was a lot of things that Jesus processed in prayer. He had strong words, and he was privately strong with God. Jesus was with God alone in the private place, and he was very bold in the public place. He gained power from his prayer life. He was incredibly passionate about his prayer life. I do not think we should look at Luke 11 like millions and millions of Catholics look at Luke 11 every day. They say it heartlessly, mindlessly, without any emotion engagement. They just roll over this passage. Millions and millions of people say this prayer daily, and they walk away unchanged. I do not think that is Luke's intention of writing this passage. I do not think that was Jesus' intention on teaching this passage. There is a method and structure of how you should pray and aspects of prayer that we're going to look at today. And there's some very encouraging heart of God and and our our situation as people we're going to look at here at this passage. Real high level. Let's look at 
what the Bible says about Jesus in prayer. Isaiah 53, verses 12, and Hebrews talks about Jesus in prayer. If you go on to, uh, I mean, Hebrews 5, 7 says, with, with both prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears, is what it describes Jesus' prayer life as. That's not a sleepy prayer meeting with Jesus. The man is emotionally, mentally, he's invested in bringing his burdens and his pains to God. If you go to the, the next passages here in Matthew, this is what the book of Matthew says about Jesus in prayer. A whole bunch of different passages talk about Jesus in prayer. If you go to Mark, I mean Mark 1, 35, it talks about early in the morning when it was still dark, Jesus got away to a solitary place to pray. We go to Luke, the book right now. And in Luke 6, it talks about how Jesus spent the whole night in prayer before pointing and raising up the disciples. You go to John. John 17, it's the high priestly prayer. It is a powerful, amazing passage of Jesus' high priestly prayer. You get to look under the hood of Jesus' prayer life and watch his prayers as he's praying to God. Dan, our own Dan, is going to be speaking at the Bible conference here later in February, and you all are going to be invited to that. And he and other pastors are going to be preaching through the high priestly prayer. It will be a great time. You'll get the date later. Amen? Never once have I read through the gospel accounts and thought mindless, heartless, legalistic, ritualistic prayers. I see a rich mental, a rich emotional, a rich engagement of people doing work and business with God. If that's what our prayer lives look like, people would pray more. If that's what our church prayer meetings were like, people would want to come to them more. We can make it too cerebral as Christians. I see Jesus doing work in the Gospels, spiritual battling in prayer. He's alone in private prayer in the wilderness, away from the people, crying out to God, pouring out very real feelings and emotions to God, processing pains and burdens he has, gathering his spiritual power in private prayer walk with God. I don't see scenes of sleepy, larger, older congregations repeat after me, sleepy prayer meetings. I see Jesus doing work with God. If, if, if this if prayers roll over the tongue and rolls without rolling over the mind or rolling over your heart, you deceive yourself. And we Christians can deceive ourselves on the subject of what is prayer and what is not prayer. Listen, Christians, many, many pray and walk away unchanged. Many, many hearts, souls, and minds are not engaged in their prayer lives. So what follows answering the question, teach me to pray, Jesus' disciples, he lays out very systematically what some potential models of prayer could be for us. I think this is very important for you to really grasp what real prayer is, what authentic prayer is from Jesus himself. Look with me at verse 2. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And we're going to stop with the word Father. We're going, so like names matter, especially in the Bible. What is a name? If you close your eyes and think of, think of God, names of God, what names come to mind? I was looking over. There's hundreds and hundreds of names of God in the Old Testament. Abba, Adam, Adonai, Advocate, the Almighty, Almighty God, Alpha and the Omega, All-Sufficient One, the Amen, the Ancient of Days, the Anointed One, the Apostle, High Priest, the Anointing Sacrifice, the Author and Finisher of our Faith, the Author of Eternal Security, the Author of Life, the Author of Peace, and that's the A's. There's hundreds of names of God. If you think of God, though, you probably think of God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit. That's probably the names you rattle off. And what's significant here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 66 times in the gospel accounts, Jesus refers to God, the title he gives God, as Father. Father. None of my kids say Reverend, Pastor, 
whatever title, that's reverend, I'm just having fun, <laughs> whatever titles I should have as a pastor, Mr. Whitney, my kids don't call me that. They call me dad. They don't call me father. They call me dad. Sometimes daddy, usually dad. That's what my four kids call me. It would be kind of weird if my kids called me fancy names. <laughs> Maybe you called your parents fancy names, but in my household, they call me dad, sometimes father. This is a significant shift that Jesus is modeling for us at how to pray, his disciples, how to pray. In 1 John 1.12, it says this, To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Bible says your identity is a son or daughter of the king, and you're approaching your father. That is a paradigm shift in the history of God's work with people. And also you should notice there's not a lot of fancy language. Usually, like, when we pray, we get, like, super spiritual, and we get super insider language. And I was, I remember that community group we were at, not this last community group, the one before that, that we're at our house. And I was sitting in a group and I said, hey, pray at the person next to you. And I turned, I was praying for a young lady. And she said, you know, there was like 14 of us in this, on our living room. And she's like, you know, I've never prayed before. I was like, what? She's like, I've never prayed. I'm like, well, just, you'll be fine. You'll do great. I don't remember what I said. But she prayed a very sincere prayer without a lot of fancy Christian rhetoric. And then she concluded her prayer. I'm like, I feel very convicted how just rawly you talk to God. That was great. It was refreshing. She spoke to God like her father. There shouldn't be special religious language. Now we can get, we can do, we can give out Olympic gold medals in Christianity at how we can get all fancy rhetoric and specialized fancy words we would never use. We use in prayer meetings. This is not the model we see from Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. There isn't a polished language. This is actually flies against the common you know, fancy rhetoric that was going on by Jewish rabbis at that day when they taught their disciples to pray. When you pray, say, Father. This, that should symbolize a deep relationship with a son or daughter with their father. A deep relationship. Jesus models deep relationships with God, deeper walk with God. In verse 2 here, Father. That's translated to Abba, Daddy, Papa. It's an intimate relationship with a good relationship with your father. That should even remind you of Galatians 4, 6. It says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We can have a deep relationship with God in our prayer life and how we speak to God if you are a follower of God, if you are a Christian. When you pray, say, Father. Very important. Next little stanza there, next little line. Hallowed be your name. So there's a tension here between Father, and hallowed be your name. So intimate, respect, Abba, Papi, Papa, hallowed be your name. There's a tension between these two concepts. Yes, it's your heavenly Father, but we don't get flippant with it. We don't get light with it. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name, the Bible dictionary says, to make holy or sacred, to sanctify or consecrate, to venerate. Hallowed's meaning is holy are you God. Your nature, your character, your being is holy. Hallowed be your name. It could remind you of what it says in Revelations about the angels standing around the throne of God and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Just opening your prayer life with reminding your personal, private prayer life of magnifying God's name, praising who God is, acknowledging who you're talking to. You're not talking to a person at you know, McDonald's. You're not talking to a police officer who pulled you over for speeding. You're talking to a God who knows the cosmos who made you, 
who knows everything that's going to happen in your day and everything that's happened in every day in the past and every day that's going to happen in the future, who you're going to stand before naked and give an account for every thought, word, and deed you've ever done your entire life. The God of the cosmos, the all-powerful God of the universe is who you're talking to, and he's your father. Your father, hallowed be your name. There's a tension between these two. We need both. This is, a, this is a big God we're talking to. Hallowed be his name. His name is honor, holy, sacred, consecrated. This is a big deal. And he's your father. There's a tension we need to hold on to in our private prayer time of both adoring God, praising God, magnifying God. This is healthy for us to remind our hearts of what, is, what we're coming into the presence of. A heavenly father who's way more than any earthly father whose name is holy. Verse two again. Your kingdom come. If you've read the Matthew 6.10 version, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come. It's a simple and significant part of prayer that we need to have. Baked into that phrase, your kingdom come, should be a softening of your will, your mind, your heart, your motivation. It's God's will be done, not my will be done. God's plans be done, not my plans be done. God's kingdom come, not my kingdom come. There should be a yielding, a softening, to your scheming, your efforts. It's like you exhale and you let go of the steering wheel. Say, yeah, I shouldn't be driving this car. (laughs) Yeah, your will be done. Your kingdom come. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Jesus, you should hold this wheel. And you should drive this car in my life and our family and this church. And your will be done. Your kingdom come. If you repeat, I mean, how did Christ bring his kingdom? How did Christ bring his kingdom, church? How did Christ bring his kingdom here on earth among men? It's a very important question. Your kingdom come? Is it just a prayer we pray? How does Christ bring his kingdom to Lincoln, Nebraska in the year 2022? By bringing godly men and godly women into obedience to the Father's will. By you obeying God's will for your life, that allows God's kingdom to come into your family, into your loved ones, your neighborhood, your network, when we are walking in submission to God's will as godly obeying men and women, God's kingdom is coming and it's alive. Remember Jesus' opening line when he came out of 40 days in the desert, when he began ministry, his opening line was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is central to Jesus' message. The kingdom of God is important to God. Your kingdom come. It's a call on life, a life defined by repentance and obedience. Your kingdom come. So the first part about this prayer is to focus our heart and the posture of our heart towards a vertical relationship with the, with the son and daughter of God and their heavenly father. And you and God need to be right in your relationship with God to be right with anything else in your life. We've got to be right with God before we're right with any fellow person. The second part of this prayer shifts from focusing vertically to focusing horizontally. And that addresses problems, people, and pain we all experience. When you jump into verse 3, it says, Give us each day our daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. Daily we are to come to God for what we need. I'm reminded of the Israelites wandering in the desert. Daily they had to look to God for bread, manna, and meat, quail. Daily God provided a cloud by day and a fire by night. Cloud by day to give them shelter from the scorching sun in the desert and fire by night to keep them warm in a cold desert. Bread daily, quail daily, God's light and God's shelter daily. They look to God. 
That is a beautiful picture for us of what our daily walk of God should be like. Substance, meat, the bounty of rich meat, and the daily substance of bread, a fire to light my dark nights, and a cloud to shelter me from the scorching day. Daily, we should look to God's hand of provision for our life. It's a simple request from God to meet our needs, but it means more than just physical food. It means spiritual bread and other forms of substance. Wisdom, knowledge, courage. God wants a daily relationship with you, Christian. John 6, 51 says, I am, Jesus is saying, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of others is my flesh. Jesus used this word of bread. It's kind of like how we, how we, uh, we like our burgers. Amen? <laughs> we like burgers in Nebraska. This is the beef state. Is it the beef? It's the beef state, right? We love our burgers. In the Jewish world did not have hamburgers. They had bread. There was day-old bread. There was week-old bread. But their bread isn't like our bread. Our bread does not handle time well. I mean, there could be a loaf of bread in your fridge that's been in your fridge for a long time. With preservatives and refrigeration, it's going to last a long time. The making of bread without preservatives or refrigerators, bread was a central theme to what it was like to feed your family, feed your loved ones, feed yourself. Give us our daily bread. That meant a lot. So think about this. God wants us to go beyond just a toddler relationship with a parent. So if he's the Heavenly Father, give us our daily bread. I had toddlers growing up. Growing up. When our early marriage, Annie and I had four kids. We had four kids. And they used to be toddlers. And I don't know what you were like as a toddler. You probably were perfect, your mom says. But, but kids seem to be very needy. Give me, feed me, carry me, hold me, play with me, change me. They don't say change me, but they say a lot of other stuff. And it's a very self-centered, narcissistic relationship of a child and me, their father. But as time went on, I do not have a 10-year-old saying, change me, feed me, hold me. They say play with me, but they don't say the other stuff. You have never called your mom or dad the last couple years of your life and said, feed me, hold me, carry me, play with me. Right? Your relationship has changed with your earthly father and mother. It's grown from a toddler relationship to an adult relationship. Our relationship with God needs to go through that same healthy growth from very needy, give us our daily bread, which we all have to have to more mature, established walk of God that grows beyond that. Your relationship with your heavenly father needs to grow and change beyond just a young toddler relationship to an adult relationship. And then we go on to verse four, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And this gets into that daily recalibrating walk with God, how we have to daily remind ourselves and recalibrate ourselves. Because when I sin, I distance myself from you. And when I sin against you, the relationship splits. And when I sin against God, the relationship splits. I'm not talking like, I'm going to lose my soul and go to hell. I'm talking like sin has consequences. And when I hurt you, there's consequences. When I sin against God, there's consequences. Our sin has consequences. And a walk with God, a walk with as a disciple of Jesus shows there's a daily recalibrating where you pause, you pray, you think, hey, have I, have I done wrong by you, God? Have I done wrong by my family? Have I done wrong by my close relationships? Is there someone I need to get right with? We model that for you as a church, as we take communion weekly as a church. But that should be something you do daily, walking around, recalibrating your life, a daily assessment of where you are at and your main relationships in your life. It's a healthy thing to pause, pray, and think about, what have I, is there something I've done? I feel convicted by what I read. I feel convicted by 
the Spirit prompted me saying, no, nah, that was wrong. You should not have done that. You got mad at your boss. You should not have done that. You should not have posted that. You should not have wrote that. That was wrong. That's sin. You should, you should be able to confess and yield and soften when you feel conviction. Verse, this verse, verse 4, should feel like we're doing a... We, we, we should be familiar to what we do of communion weekly. It's a healthy habit for you to walk through as you grow and mature. The reality is if you don't repent of sin and bring it to God, there's a distance that grows in your coldness if you and God and you in relationships with others. The reality is if you stop repenting and you stop admitting you've failed and you've not been what you should have been, you refuse to admit fault, your relationships with people around you will grow cold. Eventually you'll become hard-hearted or they'll become hard-hearted towards you. I know a handful of people that I don't think I've ever heard them apologize in my life. I'm not saying like they're in this room. I'm saying like in my life, there's a handful of people that never apologize. And there's a, there's a hardness I have to guard against. And there's a hardness that just happens in hearts and in relationships. There's a stiffening that happens if you refuse to repent. If you refuse to repent to God, there's a stiffening, a hardness that comes into that relationship. Your walk with God slows down to a stop. If you stop obeying, you're on the path to dying spiritually. Your walk with God starts to die when you stop obeying. The second part here, forgiving others doesn't mean we open ourselves up to the same toxic, dysfunctional, self-destructive life patterns that people have. Some people are unrepentant and they're, they're trouble. You can forgive them without including them right into the dysfunction of your life. I'm not saying we do that. You can forgive them and release them, but you still have to take steps of protecting yourself. Let's look back at verse 4. And forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. If you know the Matthew version, it says, but deliver us from the evil one. See, you and I have an enemy. Peter defines him as the devil, and he's roaming around as a lion, seeking someone to devour. We need to be alert. The devil is real. He does exist, and he has legions of demons that are assigned to harass, tempt, and harm us. We shouldn't be over over-infatuated them. We shouldn't act like they don't exist. There's a healthy tension there we need to be in. The reality of spiritual enemies. If the Lincoln Zoo failed and a lion, I think they have a lion. They have a cougar. What do they have? They have tigers. The Lincoln Zoo failed. And let's say the tigers got out. All right. And Nikki comes in and she's like, guys, there's tigers in the parking lot. It's not a lion. We'll, we'll make it work. All right. You better be alert walking to your car that there's tigers roaming the property. Does that make sense? So I'm saying, Christian, there are spiritual lions and tigers and bears out to get you called the world, the devil, and the flesh. And if you're not alert and sober-minded about that, you'll be eaten up. Someone will take a bite out of you. You need to be alert spiritually to the reality of what it means to walk with God. It means you have enemies of God that are now enemies of your enemies because you're son or daughter of the king. This is a healthy model for us on how to pray. And then verse 5, Jesus illustrates the heart behind the example, the, the method of prayer behind the motives. We jump from method of prayer, structure of prayer, to motivation. And the motivation matters. The spirit behind the structure of what we're looking at. In verse 5, it's, he wrote this, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. This is a bread. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. 
the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Verse 8, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his imprudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. What I think we need to get from this concept is, so bread, if you had someone that arrived late at night, that meant they traveled during the dangerous hours of traveling at that time in Israel. And if they arrived at your house late at night, it means it was urgent and important and unexpected. And in a culture that really valued hospitality, not to offer them fresh bread from that day was incredibly rude. And to save face, if your family and, and your whole clan, you had to offer fresh bread to guests. And so he went to his neighbor's house and knocking on the door is not, not something we do. Our phones, <clears throat> your phone, my phone, silences phone calls after a certain hour, right? That was an interesting new development. That's not a bad thing. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sleeping at night. It's great. But, but like, it's beyond just phone calls or text messages. It's like you come to my house and you're knocking on the door and you're ringing the doorbell. You're going to wake up everyone in my house. That doorbell is loud in my house. Knocking on a metal door that's been locked and bolted would wake up all the people in the household of this family. So think this, this Jewish couple is sleeping on it. Maybe they have a bed, it sounds like, which is wealthier families have a bed, and they probably pile all their toddlers and little babies on that bed. This is like them ringing the doorbell, waking up everyone to get the bread. Do you understand the boldness that is in this request? The, the, the translation, the ESV calls it imprudence, <clears throat> which is the opposite of being modest, polite, or shy. <clears throat> imprudence is not modest, polite, or shy. We pray modest, polite, and shy prayers as Christians. We're not supposed to do that. We're, not supposed, to pr- we're supposed to pray brash, bold, persistent, relentless prayers. And prudence means brash, bold, persistent, and relentless. That's what we're supposed to do in our prayer life, Christians. <clears throat> and then verse 9, it's one of the climaxes of this passage. <clears throat> Sorry. The intent of the author seems to clearly be clearly stated. If we miss this and we miss verse 13, I think we miss the whole heart behind what keeps this passage from being a legalistic wet blanket. Let's look at verse 9. Jesus says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. I tried it in a creative way when I first preached this passage to a group of college kids 10, 12 years ago. I, there's a door behind the stage. And I told one of my student leaders, when I get to this passage, get up and go behind me and just start knocking. Loud. and Don't stop. And I continued to preach my entire sermon with someone knocking a door behind. It was so confusing for everyone, including myself. It was just like jarring. Like he's just pounding on the door. <laughs> People were concerned. It was not a good idea. But let me read this just with fresh eyes. Let's look at the Amplified Bible, looking at this same passage. It gets to gets to the heart behind this. It says, so I say to you, ask and keep on asking, and, to, and it shall be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking, and you shall find. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks and keeps on asking, and he who seeks and keeps on seeking, finds. And to him who knocks and keeps on knocking, the door shall be opened. The, everyone in the Bible, the greats of the Bible you read about, the, the, big, the big fish, the big men and women of God in the Bible, they had some strong ask, seek, and knock muscles you see in the Bible. They keep at it. Jacob, Ezra, Hannah, Nehemiah, Paul, Peter, they had a strong knock, seek, ask muscles that they leaned on. If you flip to the 21st century, 
the OGs of Christianity. They're biographies of godly men and women who God used in powerful, mighty ways. They had great ask, seek, knock muscles. They were not shame, shameful, little afraid prayers. They were go-getters. They had some grit, some determination with God. All great works and movements of God originate in individuals and then groups of people asking, seeking, and knocking. I don't think it's a coincidence that the largest three of the four largest churches in the world are in South Korea. They've had 24-7, 365 prayer meetings that's gone for decades. I don't think it's a coincidence that spiritual haves and have-nots ask, seek, and knock. I think there's a shocking picture that we look at in verse 11. A shocking picture looking at the nature of our Heavenly Father helps you and I have expectations as we expectantly pray. The nature of our Father. Verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? All right, so none of your kids are asking for fish and eggs this last week. Well, let's say you're at church and your son or daughter asks you if they can get another donut. And he said, nah, here's a heroin needle. You're like, ask you for a piece of gum. And you're like, nah, here's some crack. No, right? Even evil, bad-natured fathers in our culture don't do that. Does that make sense? The nature of bad, fallen, fleshly fathers here give good things to their kids. The nature of our heavenly father, if we're true sons and daughters of the king, the nature of our heavenly father is to give us, what is it? Let's look at verse 13 again. Your heavenly father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So this is not a Joel Olstein health and wealth prosperity gospel church. We don't grab material possessions and slap it into the verse 13. The best thing, the best thing Jesus can get from God, the best thing God the father can give to his sons and daughters is himself, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you find that relationship through your prayer life. If you're stagnant, your spiritual walk is stale, your prayer life is stagnant and stale. Men and women, think of how the disciples just changed. We read about them here, they're like, ah. We read about them in the Garden of Gethsemane, they couldn't pray for an hour, we're like, nah. And then we read about them later in their life. After the Holy Spirit came and filled all the believers, we see, we see these men of God and women of God accomplishing great feats throughout the rest of the New Testament. And there's power and there's understanding and there's growth. And these people are different people after the gospel accounts. The disciples changed because of the prayers. They grew up because of their prayers. They were refined and they got over sin and they got over insecurities and they become the men God wanted them to be. And the titans of the faith we read about, they learned to pray. As time went on, they became formed in the image of God because they spent time with God. Their identity became impacted by God. The best thing God can give you is himself. Himself, the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of an excellent sermon Ben gave. He talked about the Holy Spirit and how to be filled with the Spirit. And I think uh, a lot of Reformed churches like us can kind of like make this super cerebral. But Jesus, with loud cries, prayers, and petitions were presented as requests to God. There's a lot of rawness in Jesus' emotionally processing life, and Jesus is a bigger theologian than any of us will ever be. There's the mental and the emotional that showed up when Jesus prayed. I don't, I don't think we, could be, we don't need to be afraid of this. We should learn how to pray mentally, 
emotionally, head, heart, soul, we can learn how to pray. And if you, and if you, if you're desperate, if a, if a sibling is dying, a parent is dying, you're dying, you get desperate and you get real and raw. If life gets real, you get real in your prayer life. It's appropriate to confess, yield, and ask God to lead you. Ben shared this great sermon about how we're confessing our sin. We yield, like kingdom come yielding. And that's that God would lead us with wisdom and understanding what we read in the Bible and what we feel, and mature believers feel prompted to obey and do. I think there's a tendency where we get brittle about this passage, but this is all over our Bible. Men and women of God pursuing God. In the good times and the bad times. The title of the sermon is Shameless Persistence. Playing off of that verse 8. If you look at verse, verses 11, all this passage in verse 11, I think there's another famous passage Jesus is teaching on prayer. In Luke 18, verse 1, when Jesus told the disciples a parable to show them that they should pray and not give up. Verse 2, he said to them, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with, with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because of this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Verse 6, and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I know Jesus, whenever he preaches on prayer, he's poking at the soft underbelly of Christian prayer that I can have and you can have. All of us don't measure up in this area of our life. We all can grow. We all can be taught something today. Not just cerebrally taught something, but experientially grow in this area. What are some applications for us? I think just pray and don't give up. There's some of you who have spouses, loved ones, kids that are wayward. Some of you have persistent sins in your life, life-dominating sins in your life. Some of you feel a burden and a call to ministry. Pray and don't give up. I, uh, I think about like, I bet like five minutes after I die, standing in heaven, I will, I will think a lot differently about how I spent my time here on earth. I have a feeling a lot of us, if we could feel guilt in heaven and regret in heaven, we would feel like, man, if I could do this over again, I'd wish I prayed more here on earth. The spiritual haves and have-nots, the keys of the kingdom, everything is laid out for those who seek, knock, and ask. It seems like there's an encouragement to persevere in prayer and encouragement to be bold in prayer. And there's some of you who have very bold and consistent prayers. And others of you who have very persistent, non-bold prayers. The bold people need to learn how to be persistent, and the persistent people need to learn how to have some holy boldness because if God answered the persistent people's prayers, things might not change at all in this life or your life. If God answered the bold people's prayers after they pray one day and they quit, we need to be both bold and persistent. We need to knock and ask knowing the nature of our Father. Being persistent and bold is what we're called to do. I know that prayer is worship, prayer is work, and prayer is for those who are weak. Though the proud, strong Christians don't pray, I know that. I remember times in my life where there's little things that you pray about. I was reminded by Hudson Taylor, it says a little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. 
I know I can demonstrate little faith and little things in my life and being persistent in little prayers in my life. I've been praying for years that lost friends have become saved. And I think God slowly, one by one, has been answering, not all, but a chunk of those prayers. And I'm persisting and praying for my lost friends to become saved. I remember when I was like 13, I started to pray that my wife, Annie, who I did not know, she's not over there. She was over there in the first service. <laughs> my wife, Annie, would, would you know, be the woman she is. I was prayed for that girl when I was 13 until I got married to her. And I stopped praying for her, right? Right, husbands? Right? <laughs> just kidding I pray for my wife still I remember praying for my first car my second car my third car and I have some cool God stories of God providing cars I remember praying for my first house that would be a mile from campus because I was the campus director of that college group now now the, like an applicable prayer that you all could join me in praying at, at 10.02 the most awkwardest alarm goes off at 10.02 six days a week not seven because Sunday at 10.02 is during the first service um, this alarm goes off, and that reminds me of what Luke, uh, Derek preached on in Luke 10, verses 2, saying, The Lord of the harvest, pray to the Lord of the harvest for more labor, more workers to help you enter the field. I've been praying that prayer since last spring. I'm going to pray that prayer the rest of my life, that God brings in more workers, more laborers. But our motivation of our prayer life is to be bold and to be persistent and know the nature of who we're talking to. Jesus invites you to shameless persistence in your prayer life. Jesus invites you to shameless, bold prayers. The disciples got it, and they learned, and they grew, and so can you. Jesus wants to teach us how to pray. The disciples built a ministry in the church on the prayers they had. You read about all these prayers that happened, all these prayer meetings that happened, all throughout the Gospels, and all into the book of Acts. The praying changed the early disciples. The praying will change you. Your prayer life grows you, just like it grew the early disciples, and your prayer life will transform you, just like it transformed the early disciples. The Lord teaches to pray. We've had, we've had two long-standing prayer meetings at our church that have both been going for about, I think, a one-year anniversary coming up for both those prayer meetings. One's on Sunday nights. If you're a YP, young professional, you're invited to that. You can email hello at soberchurch.com. I'll give you their info. The other one is on like a Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. here at the building. I think God is teaching us how to pray as a church. I think there's this healthy book we read, our leadership team read last spring. It's this orange book on prayer. It's on corporate prayer, not personal prayer. It's on corporate prayer. What does healthy church prayer look like? It talks about how prayer is not a gossip club. Prayer is not a worship service. Prayer is not a, a thing where you show up and you do everything and chit-chat, but you don't pray. You know, just what does it look like to have healthy prayer in a healthy church? I think God is taking us on a prayer journey, teaching us to pray. If you want one of these books, you can grab one for free in the resource library. I think we have a few left. If you don't move quick, you won't get one. You have to buy your own. That's fine. I think God's going to continue to teach and grow us in this area. Uh, amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for what you're doing in our life. I ask that you would just really grow us up in this prayer life. Teach us to pray, Lord, as individuals and as, as single men, single women, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas. Lord, I pray you just teach us to pray. Um, it's not like it's a paid person's position, Lord. It's not like it's a, only for the gifted people, Lord. I pray that you teach us all what it looks like to pray. I pray that you change us in our prayer life as men and women. Just grow us up in this area. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Mike, for bringing the word and preaching the word faithfully. Good morning, church. My name's Ryan. Um, I'm going to lead us in our community meditation this morning. Just two quick reminders. The first is that the red liquid is wine. Clear liquid is juice. 
Um, and then the second one is, you do not have to be a member to participate in the Lord's Supper with us this morning, a member of Sower, but we do ask that you profess complete faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Um, if you don't, let the elements pass from you and just spend some time praying um, for God to open your eyes, shape your heart. Um, yeah. So, as a church, we've been going through John Piper's uh, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, and today we're on Reason 23, which is so that we might belong to him. And the verse that we're going to meditate on this morning, kind of sit on, is uh, Romans 6.22. It says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and is in eternal life. So a question working on as a campus minister on campus and uh, you know, growing up a church, a question I hear all the time is, who are you? And uh, you know, thinking about the identity we have in Christ, the identity... Um, that Christ gives us through his death. And it's a very important question, a vital question that needs to be considered, that needs to be answered about who you are. But this morning, I want to pose another very important vital question that I don't think gets asked very often. And that is, whose are you or to whom do you belong? In the world, people talk about how they're autonomous, that they're their own person, that they're their own creature, they're not you know, bounded or, or a slave in a sense to anything. But in reality, we're all, everyone on earth is a slave to one of two, of two things. They're either a slave to their sin and a slave to darkness or a slave to Christ and a slave to righteousness. And at one time or another, we were all slaves to our sin. And you may be thinking, Ryan, what do you mean by a slave to sin? And, and to that, I turn to Romans 7, or remember Romans 7, verse 15, where Paul says, I do the things I don't want to do. And I don't do the things that I do want to do. Man, I, it's like, man, I sin, and I, and I know this is wrong, but I just feel like I have no victory and no power over this sin, over this thing in my life. That I was uh, a slave to it. That I was, you know, under bondage and in, in chains to my sin. But Jesus came and, and completely changed our situation, completely changed my situation that we, are, that we are no longer slaves to our sins. We are no longer in, in bondage to that. But we are free in Christ and slaves to him. That we are to do good, to seek after Christ, to worship him, to love him, to serve him with all of our lives. He bought us with a price, and that price was his own blood on the cross. So that we are his, that we belong to Christ. And what an incredible truth that we belong to Christ, that we are completely free in Christ, not autonomous on our own, but slaves to him, slaves to, to worship and to seek and to love and to serve a perfect king. So church, take a few moments, reflect on who, whom do you belong to? Have you given your life to Christ? And if not, ask that, that you just lay down your life before him this morning. So just repent and take a few minutes before the king. Church, if you would rise with me. If you would take the bread and, and remember Christ's body that was broken for you. Take the cup and remember the blood of Christ that was poured out for us.
Let's pray. Dear Father, you are good and mighty and holy. Father, I just praise you. We praise you as a church for sending Christ to the cross so that we would be free from, from sin, that we would be, have freedom in you, Christ, that we'd be able to have a relationship with you, be able to love you, be able to, to serve you, to know you personally and intimately. Jesus, thank you for everything that you've done, for continually to pour out grace and mercy on us. Father, I just ask you to continue to shape our hearts and shape our minds. Lord, we love you. We know that you love us. We pray all these, all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing the first two verses of A Mighty Fortress together. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never fails. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills, Okay, Stoner Church.